0: Good morning. Great to see everybody today. Uh, it's hard to believe that Christmas is just right around the, the corner, just a few weeks away. And uh, when it comes to Christmas, there's, there's really two categories, two types of, of people. Um, There's those of you who as soon as Halloween is over and the clock rolls to November 1st, you are in full-blown Christmas mode. Mariah Carey's coming on, the tree's going up, uh, peppermint mocha at at Starbucks, Like you are full-blown Christmas mode for two months as soon as Halloween is done. And then there's uh, another group of you, this is a category I would fall in, and you actually appreciate the great American holiday of Thanksgiving. And uh, you don't just neglect it and blow past it. You actually you recognize that it is the best holiday of, of the year. It, it really is. And, and here's why. You, you get football. You get the Macy's Day Parade. It's got the best food. Like, th- Christmas is like a cheap knockoff imitation of what you eat at, at Thanksgiving. So, it's got the really good food. You've got incredible deals. Like, if you're an online shopping whiz like me, I mean, the, the, the cyber deals going on are incredible. And then you don't have to buy gifts for anybody. And I, I love that, especially now that I have kids. It's like, man, I get to all these deals. I get the food. I get the, you know, the football, Macy's Day Parade. Uh, but listen, I, I hope you enjoy Thursday, even if you're the uh, Mariah Christmas on November 1st kind of person. Appreciate Thanksgiving. Have a, a great time with your friends, great time with your, your family. But seriously, as we, as we approach uh, Christmas season, our heart, our desire as a church is that we want to be a blessing to our church family. And uh, throughout the year, we're always looking for, for ways to be a blessing uh, internationally, through mission teams that we send, locally, through some of our... Um, Serve the city partners to different church plants church plants throughout the United States, but uh, we do something special during the Christmas season to be a blessing during to, uh, to to our church family and it's called the the blessing tree this is something we do each year and we give you all the opportunity to nominate a single parent family from our our church um, that you know may have um, just a little extra need during this time of the year, and we review those, those nominations as a staff, and then uh, out of our WOW offering that we take earlier in the year, we use some of those funds to bless families in our, in our church. So if you are aware of any single-parent families who are connected with our church, who attend here, who serve here, this is their, their church home, uh, we would love for you to, to nominate them. The easiest way to do that, uh, following service, you'll notice uh, two Christmas trees in our lobby with signs with a QR code. You can just scan that QR code and uh, submit their, their info. And uh, man, we just look uh, as a way to, to bless our, our church family uh, during, during the Christmas season. So we are in uh, week four of our series to the book of Daniel. We're going to be wrapping this up uh, next week. And our series has really revolved around the lives of these, these four young men. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And uh, what we've been seeing each week is these guys, as, as young men, are trying to figure out how to live out their faith as Israelites in this society, and this culture, that was very much at odds with their values and their, their beliefs. And each week, we've seen them honor the Lord by refusing to compromise their convictions, refusing to, to compromise their beliefs. But there has been another character Uh, That's been front and center in our story the entire time, and that's King Nebuchadnezzar. The the story of of Daniel, especially the first few chapters, is really just as much about the king as it's about Daniel and and his friends. He's actually the only character that occurs in in all of the the first four, four chapters. And what we've seen over and over is that God is trying to get King Nebuchadnezzar's attention. He's trying to get him to to, to pay attention to him. Back in in week one, if you think back with me, um, Daniel and his friends, they were put into this training program and they were offered the the royal food and and the royal wine, but they refused to not defile themselves with the royal food and and royal wine. At the end of the three years of the, the training program, they were presented before King Nebuchadnezzar and he began to question them and talk with them and test them and he found that these young men who were Israelites, who believed in, and the God of, believed in Yahweh, that they were 10 times better than anybody else. When it came to, to knowledge and understanding and wisdom, they were head and shoulders above the rest. And King Nebuchadnezzar recognized, man, their God has blessed them with this unique ability. And week two, we saw that King Nebuchadnezzar, he had this dream that, that troubled him. And he searched all throughout the, the empire, all throughout the kingdom for somebody to interpret this dream for him, but nobody was able to do it. But God revealed the interpretation to Daniel. And when Daniel shared with the king what the vision meant, what his dream meant, he said, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings. And then last week we saw how King Nebuchadnezzar, he constructed this this image of gold and demanded that everyone in Babylon bow down and worship this statue. But when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they refused to bow down and worship the statue, he had them thrown into this blazing furnace. But God came through for them. He met them in the fire and rescued them and delivered them from the king. And when the king saw that these these young men were completely unharmed and that their God had intervened, he said, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. God has clearly been at work in the king's life. He's trying to get his attention. And so far, the the king has acknowledged that Daniel's God is not only real, but that he's powerful. He's like, okay, I recognize your God, Yahweh. He's real, he's powerful. And he's even supportive of Daniel and his friends worshiping their God and serving their God. He's on board with that. But despite acknowledging God, He refused to submit himself to the authority of God. He believed in the existence of God, but he had no interest in following him or obeying him. And you see, I I think King Nebuchadnezzar really is a picture. he, He really represents many people in our world today. I think most people would say that they are spiritual, Meaning, you know, they, they believe in, in some kind of higher power. Something is out there. Most, most people are, are cool with the idea, okay, there is a God. They believe in the existence of God. And many people would even say they believe in the God of the Bible. They identify as Christians. They celebrate Christmas and Easter. They go to church. Like, they're cool with Jesus and totally supportive of people serving and following Jesus. But although they believe And the existence of God, although they acknowledge him, they haven't actually surrendered their lives to him. Now, here's what we need to understand. There is a huge difference. There's a huge gap between acknowledging God and submitting to God. There's a difference between believing in him, believing he exists, and actually following him. And today, we're going to see King Nebuchadnezzar make this shift, make this move from simply acknowledging God's existence to actually submitting and surrendering to God himself. So, if you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to open up to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. This is uh, one of the most interesting and strange stories uh, that you'll find in, in the Bible. It's one of those stories that uh, if somebody told you about it, you probably wouldn't believe is actually in the Bible unless you read it for yourself. And I'd say, may, even if you've been around church for, for months, even years, this may be a story that, that you've never heard, that you've never read. It's a story I've never taught before. And it's particularly interesting because this chapter of Scripture was actually written by King Nebuchadnezzar, by this pagan king, which reminds us that God can speak and does speak and reveal truth through anyone or anything that he wishes. Like, it's all at God's disposal. God is at work in all of it. It all belongs to God. But in Daniel chapter 4, starting in verse 1, it says this. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders, his kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation." So in the opening verses of chapter four, you can tell that the king's attitude, the king's posture towards God has changed pretty dramatically. He has clearly submitted himself, surrendered himself to the authority of God, to the authority of Daniel's God, Yahweh. So it makes you wonder, okay, what what has happened here between chapter three and chapter four to lead him to this? What has caused this change in the king's life and in his heart? Well, listen to what he tells us, verse four. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind, they terrified me. So the king, he was just kind of hanging out, chilling in his palace. He said he was prosperous, he was content, not worried about a thing in the world. This guy had everything that you you could ever want, everything you could ever imagine. Wealth, power, fame, success. This was the most powerful man in the world. But once again, he began to have this, this dream, this vision that really bothered him, really, really messed with him. So he, he brings Daniel in to, to interpret the, the dream for him. And he starts to share with, with Daniel that in this dream, there's this tree that grows uh, large and strong. In fact, the tree, it grows so tall that it touches the sky and it's visible throughout the entire earth. But then the vision, it takes a bit of a a turn. And listen to what he says in verse 13. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called out in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it. And the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground and the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with dew of heaven, and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass for him. So the king has this really weird vision and, and dream, and he's looking at Daniel to Daniel to interpret it for him. Hey, what, is this, what does this mean? This is really weird. And almost immediately, Daniel knows this is not good news for, for the king. And of course, he doesn't want to share the interpretation with the king. He doesn't want to wanna to hurt his feelings. He cares about him. But even more than that, like Daniel's scared for his life. Like, if I share with the most powerful man in the world what this really means, this is not gonna be good news for me. But the king tells him: hey, don't don't be troubled by the dream, don't be troubled by its interpretation. Hey, just just shoot shoot straight with me. Man, just tell me what the dream means, Daniel. Tell me. In verse 19, Daniel says, my Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. So Daniel begins to explain the the meaning of this dream to the king. And he tells him, hey, the the tree in that vision that you see, it, it actually represents you. You have grown large and strong, and your power and your fame, it's visible throughout the entire earth. Everybody knows about you, King Nebuchadnezzar. You are the most powerful man. But then in verse 24, he tells him this. He says, this is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the the decree that the Most High has issued against my lord, the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. And then verse 26, the command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice renounce your sins by doing what is right, and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed, it may be then that your prosperity will continue. And you can just tell here as Daniel's explaining this, this dream to the king that he, he genuinely cares about King Nebuchadnezzar. He cares about his well-being, and he begins to plead with him, hey, King Nebuchadnezzar, you need to repent Renounce your sins and do what is good. Be be kind to those who you have oppressed, and maybe God will spare you. Maybe God will, will show you mercy. King Nebuchadnezzar, it's not too late for you. Please listen to me. Take my advice. But the king had no interest in what Daniel had to tell him. He kind of blew it off, paid no attention to it, and just carried on. With his life. And look what happens in verse 29. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? And then verse 33 immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass. Like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until its hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. So, what King Nebuchadnezzar had seen in this dream, seen in this vision, 12 months prior became a reality for him. And I know as you read this, this sounds like some kind of weird sci-fi movie, like part man, part animal, part man, part, part beast. But most scholars believe that King Nebuchadnezzar was suffering from a mental disorder, a real disorder called zoanthropy, where a person becomes convinced that he or she is an animal. And as the disease begins to progress, oftentimes these people will end up moving outside, outdoors, and begin to, to graze on the grass. So like King Nebuchadnezzar, he has a complete mental break. He snaps. He loses it. And for seven years, he lives like this wild animal outside. But here's what we need to understand. His downfall was rooted in his pride and his unwillingness to submit to God's authority in his life. And what is pride? Pride. Well, in a worldly sense, we would say pride is it's, it's arrogance. It's excessive or over-the-top self-esteem. But from a biblical perspective, here, here's the definition for pride. It's taking the glory that belongs to God and keeping it for ourselves. Taking the glory that belongs to God alone and keeping it for ourselves. Pride is essentially a form of self-worship where we exalt ourselves, we lift ourselves up and attempt to take the place of God. I mean, just listen to to the way King Nebuchadnezzar spoke. He said, is this not the great Babylon that I have built by my power and for my glory? He failed to see that his success in life was the result of God's hand of blessing on his life. He took credit for what God had graciously given to him, and he exalted himself and attempted to take the place of God. All the praise, all the glory, all the honor he wanted for himself. But listen, King Nebuchadnezzar's attitude, his response here, it was nothing new. He wasn't the first man and the history to, of the world to do this. In fact, this has been the great temptation since the beginning of time. I mean, think back to, to the garden when, when the serpent was tempting Eve with the fruit. What was the, the lie that he deceived her with? He said, you will be like God. Meaning you, you don't have to answer to anyone. You get to call the shots. You get to determine what is true and what is right for your life. You can have all the glory. You can be like God. Pride was at the root of the original sin. It was the the cause for the fall of mankind. And C.S. Lewis would, would argue that pride is actually at the root of all sin, Listen to what he says in his book, Mere Christianity, when he's speaking about pride. He says, pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride, which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. So what is it that keeps people from submitting their lives to the Lord, from truly following him and obeying him? It's pride. They don't want to have to answer to anyone. They don't want to be told what to do. They want to be in charge of their life. They want to call the shots and they want to have all the glory, all the recognition, all the praise for themselves. They want to be like God. They want to exalt themselves. Now, I know for, for most of us, we would probably say, you know, I don't really struggle with pride that much. Like, it's really not that much of an issue for me. Like, I, I know people who do. Uh, you know, I know my, my boss does, and I know my brother-in-law does, and I know my neighbor does, and maybe you're even thinking of somebody in this very room right now. Like, that's a problem for, for them, but me, I don't, I don't really struggle with pride that much. Man, but I think if we were to take an honest look, an honest evaluation at our, at our lives we would find more pride in our hearts than I think we would like to admit. I know that's certainly the case in my life. Even this week as I've been preparing and praying and wrestling through this, man, God has revealed, God has surfaced some, some areas of pride in my life, and my heart that I wish weren't there. And so what are, what are some symptoms Of pride? What are some signs of pride in in our life? I think pride is a tricky thing because it looks different for everybody. You know, typically when we think of somebody who's proud and arrogant, we think of some like big muscle meathead who's jacked and walking around and thinks they're a big deal. Like, like that's like the image we have in our head or somebody who's always posting on, on social media about their vacations and their house and their car. Like that, that's how we tend to think about pride. But the thing with pride is it surfaces, it appears very differently for, for all of us. So I want to provide just a a few symptoms, a few signs of pride. And I'll tell you, I'll be up front, these are all symptoms of what pride can look like in in my life. And maybe you'll, you'll resonate with a few of these. The first one is this, is competitiveness. And I'm not talking about competition when it comes to sports, playing football, playing basketball, but where you see other people as your competition, And for you, life is all about, I need to win. I need to beat them. I need to be more successful, make more money, be more recognized, have more followers. I need to be the top dog. I need to be the alpha. They are my competition, and I'm not happy when they succeed. I need to win, and they need to lose. You view life, you view other people like competition. Another sign is is this self-centeredness, where we believe it is all about me, and I've got to get what's mine. I've got to get uh, what what, what I deserve. And we function, we would never say it, but we function as if all the people in our life, our spouse, our kids, our friends, our, our, our coworkers, our boss, those people, they all exist to meet our needs, to do what we want. They are there to to give us what we desire. And as soon as those people aren't helping us meet our needs anymore, well, they become useless for us, and we cut them out, and we move on to somebody else. Defensiveness. Like somebody comes to you with a, a complaint or some criticism or even some helpful feedback, and your initial reaction, your initial response is you want to bow up. Like, who are you to tell me what to do. Who are you to speak into my life? Who are you to try to tell me how to do my job? I'm the expert here. Who do you think you are coming to me and giving me advice? You get defensive when somebody tries to speak truth to you, whether it's valid or not. Another symptom is entitlement. Just uh, feeling this belief of, I deserve this. They owe me. I deserve that raise. I deserve that recognition. I deserve the praise. I've been here long enough. I've worked hard enough. They owe it to me. A critical spirit where we're constantly looking for what's wrong and pointing out the things that we don't like or that we don't agree with. We do this in our marriages with our spouse. We do this at work. We do this with our church. It's never good enough. We're the expert, we know what's best, and everyone else, well, they're just stupid. They don't see it the way I do. Why can't they recognize all the things that are wrong? Self-righteousness, this sense of moral superiority where we look at other people and like, man, I'm glad I'm not like them. I'm glad I'm not a train wreck like she is. I'm glad, you know, I haven't made the mistakes they've made. And we look down on other people who struggle with things and it's just this sense of, yeah, maybe I've got some problems, but at least I'm not like them. And finally, self-will. This belief of I can do it all on my own. I'm self-made. I've achieved this. I've built this. I didn't need anybody's help. I got to the top all by my Self. Do any of these resonate with you? I hope I'm I'm not alone in in, in these. Man, so if we recognize that there's some pride in our hearts, if we see some symptoms, if we see some some fruit of it in our life, then then what do we do? Like what's the the cure for, for a prideful heart? Well, listen to what happens in verse 34. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. After seven years, it says that King Nebuchadnezzar lifted his eyes towards heaven meaning he took his eyes off himself and his kingdom and his fame and his power and he turned his eyes towards heaven. He turned his eyes towards God and recognized that there was someone else who was above him. And in that moment, he approached God with a posture of humility. You see, humility is the cure. It's the antidote to a prideful heart. I think there's a lot of misconception when it comes to, to humility. For some, they, they think you know, being humble means that you're, you're weak, that you're a pushover, that you get walked all over by, by other people. Some people think being humble means you kind of look down on yourself, you walk around with your head down, you have a low self-esteem, kind of like, like Eeyore, you, just, you don't feel good about yourself, you're just down, you're You're negative. But here's what humility is. There's a lot of different definitions, but I think this sums it up well. Humility is having an accurate view of yourself in relation to God. An accurate view of yourself in relation to God. It doesn't mean looking down on yourself. It doesn't mean thinking less of yourself. It doesn't mean getting walked all over. But it means looking up to God and viewing yourself, viewing your life in light of who God is, realizing, okay, you're God, and I'm not. You're in charge, and I'm not. You deserve the glory. You deserve the praise, not me. Viewing ourselves, viewing our lives in light of who God is. Listen, King Nebuchadnezzar, he was humbled. He was brought low. And when he finally looked up to God, when he took his eyes off himself and placed his eyes on God, it says his sanity was restored. And for the first time in his life, rather than trying to to grab the praise and the honor for himself and exalting who he was, he gave the glory and praise to God. And he went from simply acknowledging the existence of God to surrendering and submitting his life to God. There was a change. There was a transformation that happened when he approached God with a posture of humility. But then he leaves us with this warning, and I don't want us to miss this. Verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, I praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven. It's not about me. I don't deserve the praise. It's all for him. Because everything that he does, it is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Now, let's not miss this warning that he's giving us. This is one of the, the most powerful men who has ever lived. He had more wealth, more fame, more, more success than, than, than we could possibly imagine. And he tells us that those who walk in pride, those who walk in arrogance, God is able to humble them. And this warning is, is consistent with what we see throughout Scripture. Listen to what James chapter 4 verse 6 says. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud. But shows favor to the humble. God opposes the proud. And who are the proud? All of us at times. We all have pride in our hearts. We all have a sin nature that desires and seeks the glory for ourselves. We all want to be like God. We want to call the shots. We want to be in charge. We don't want to answer to anybody else, which means that we will all be humbled at some point in our lives. And we will be humbled either willingly or unwillingly. We can either choose to approach God with a a posture of humility where we take our eyes off ourselves, lift our eyes to to, to heaven, and submit to God's authority in in our life and recognize he's God. I'm not. He's in charge. I'm not. He's deserving of the praise. I'm not. Or we can continue to live our lives according to our plans and what we think is best and what we think is right and do it for our glory and our honor, and he will do it for us. Listen, God humbled King Nebuchadnezzar. He brought him low and took everything away from him. But here's what I love. This, this was less an act of judgment and more an act of mercy because his humbling led to his repentance. God brought him low to save him. He rescued King Nebuchadnezzar from himself and from his pride. And here's what we need to understand today. And the the kindest thing that God can do for you is to humble you before you wreck your life. Because the Bible teaches us in in Proverbs that that pride leads to destruction. Pride leads to, to ruin. And don't we see this every day in our world? We, we look around at Hollywood, sports, and politics, and we see people walking in pride, believing it's all about them, seeking the glory, seeking the honor, seeking the fame, and their pride leads to their destruction. God graciously humbles us to lead us to a place of repentance where we willingly submit ourselves to God's authority. So here, here's the application for today. Here, here, here's my challenge, and I'll, I'll be up front. This is not gonna be for everyone. This may not even be for, for, for most of you, but here's, here, here's the application. I want to, to invite you to pray what I call a, a dangerous prayer. And it's dangerous because it's the kind of prayer that if you pray it and you mean it, I'm confident that God will answer it. So don't pray it unless you're prepared for God to, to answer it. It's a very simple prayer, and it's this. God, humble me. Humble me. If there's any pride in my heart, if any way I'm seeking the glory for myself, if there's any way where I'm trying to be like God and exalt myself and live according to my plans, if there's any pride in my heart, humble me. Whatever it takes to lead me to a place of repentance. And I think there's, there's two groups in this room that, that may need to, to pray that prayer. The first group is, is those of you you need to humble yourself and turn to God for, for your salvation. You know, up until this point, you have been living your life according to your plan and your desires. You know what's best. You know what's right. You know what's true. But the Bible teaches us that every single one of us, we have all fallen short of God's standard of, of perfection. We've fallen so short. We are we are. We are broken. And the gap between where we are and and what God expects and what God requires is a gap that that we cannot close on our own. No amount of of goodness or religion or success in our life will ever close that gap. And the, the Bible teaches us that the consequence for our sin, for our brokenness, is eternal separation from God. Which is why Jesus came for us. Jesus came. And died and rose again on the cross, taking on our shame and our sin and our brokenness and made a way for us to be made right with God, for us to receive God's free gift of eternal life. But in order to receive that that gift, it requires coming to God with a posture of humility for we acknowledge, we admit, God, I cannot do this on my own. I'm not good enough. I can't save myself. God, I am lost and broken without you. And I'm turning to you. I'm lifting my eyes to heaven and asking you to save me, to rescue me. Some of you today, man, that, that's when you say, God, humble me, you, you need to, God to humble you so that you turn to him for your salvation. But then I think there are a number of you in here. And you're, you're a follower of Jesus, you're, you're a believer, but you need to humble yourself in order to, to lead to your repentance. Because there's an area in your life right now where you are trying to, to be like God, where you're doing things according to your plans your desires, what you think is right, what you think is true, you don't want to listen to what anyone else has to say and it is all about your glory and your praise and your honor. Man, I would just I would I would encourage you, I would challenge you Man, I, I've seen this play out, believers who walk in pride, walk in arrogance, refuse to listen to, to the voices around them, refuse to, to, to listen to the, the, the voice, the gentle, kind voice of God saying, hey, hey, and their pride leads to destruction whether it's their career or their marriage or their family or their finances, their arrogance and their unwillingness to submit to God's authority brings destruction in their life. And for some of you today, you need to pray, God, humble me before I destroy my life, before I wreck my life. And even if that humbling is painful and embarrassing and hurts in the moment, it is the most gracious and kind thing that God can do for you because he is saving you. He is sparing you from, from so much pain and destruction in your life and in your family and in your marriage. Some of you today may just need to pray, God, humble me. So that heads bowed, eyes closed, eyes closed. God, we, we, we come to you today recognizing, acknowledging you are God and we're not. You're in charge, we're, we're not. You know what's best, we don't. And it is for your praise and your glory, not ours. God, help us to approach you with, with a posture of, of humility, recognizing who you are and, and who we're not. God, I pray for, for anyone in this room who's never come to the place where they have turned to you for, your, for, for their salvation, called out to you to, to rescue them. God, that they would humble themselves before you, that they would recognize their inability to save themselves and would call out to you for their salvation. And God, I also pray for, for those of us in here who, who, who know you, who follow you, but God, right now, we are walking in pride. We are walking in arrogance, believing we know what's best. God, that we would, we would humble ourselves before you, that we would invite you into that, even if it hurts, even if it's embarrassing, but that we would take our eyes off ourselves and to place our eyes on you. God, we thank you that you are gracious and that you are kind and that your kindness is what leads us to repentance. Not your anger, not your judgment, not your wrath, but your love and your compassion for us. God, for those of us who have been ignoring your warning, God, I pray today would be the day where you finally get our attention and that we would turn our eyes back to you. Jesus, we love you. We pray all this in your name. Amen.